Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Four weekends ago, I put a definition on the screen of an identity crisis. I want to put that definition back on the screen. Identity crisis is a period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure. When we began this series together, we talked about how that is a definite characteristic of the society that we live in today. Our society is dominated by uncertainty and confusion and has left us with a sense of not really knowing who we are. And unfortunately, this is not just true in society outside of the church. There are many followers of Jesus today who are living their lives as Christians without understanding who they really are in Christ. For example, many Christians know for sure that Jesus came and he died on a cross for their sins and he was buried and he rose again from the dead. And because Jesus came, died, was buried and rose again, they now have been made right with God. And many Christians know that one day Jesus is going to come again and when he comes again, he will take us to heaven. But unfortunately for a lot of Christians, that's the extent of what they know. They know how it began, they know how it's going to end, and the rest of the Christian life is simply a struggle to get by in between those two events. But what God's invited us into is a love relationship with himself. And what Paul teaches us in the New Testament is the more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we grow in understanding who he is, the more we understand who we are in him, and it gives us this sense of knowing who we are. That's exactly what Paul's writing about in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been studying together for four weekends a series called Knowing Who You Are, right out of this longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, all the way down to verse 14. It's filled with divine truth about who we now are in Christ. And when we began this journey together, I gave you a statement of identity that I want to put back up on the screen, and I want to read it one more time together. It's really somewhat of a 30,000-foot view of this entire section of Scripture. Let's read it out loud together. One, two, three. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father, and who I am is who I am in Him. Amen? That's who we are in Christ. We're born into this world in Adam. And in Adam, we are separated from God and cut off from God. But we're born again in Christ. And in Christ, we are now loved, accepted children of the Father. And our identity, who we are, is now wrapped up in who we are in Him. 
And for weeks, we've been walking through these verses, and we've identified some truths about who we are in Christ. And I want to just review quickly for you where we've come so far as we bring this to a close this morning. We've identified eight characteristics out of Ephesians 1 about who we are in Christ. Number one, we are chosen. We started there a few weeks ago, and that means that God in eternity past set his heart on me, meaning that who I am in Christ has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what God did on my behalf by his grace. We are chosen. Secondly, we said that we are adopted. Meaning that in Christ, you and I have become a part of a family to which we did not originally belong. The family of God. And God brought us into his family by his grace, not so that we could do something for him, but so that we could enjoy the relationship of being with him. We're not just chosen and adopted. We've looked at the fact that we are loved. As we studied this together, we understood that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. Here's what that means. As we unpack this, we learned that we can't even separate ourselves from the love of God which is found in Christ. If we'd worked our way in, we could work our way out, but we didn't earn our way in. God in his grace set his heart on us, and we are love. Number four, we said we're accepted. Here's what this means. God is pleased with you today because God is pleased with his son Jesus and you and I are now in him. I want you to hear that. As you sit here this morning, God is pleased with you. That means you don't have to earn God's acceptance through your behavior, through your performance, through your effort. You are accepted by God because you and I are in Christ. Number five, we are favored. It means that you're always in a position of God's gracious favor. And again, this is where these statements, we we hear these, but we get so off track in understanding our identity. There are a lot of Christians who, when you think about these two things in particular, a lot of Christians think, and maybe you came in today with this attitude, believing that somehow you've gotten on God's bad side. That something you've done, something you said, some action that you performed, now God's mad at you, God's frustrated with you, God's disappointed in you, God's upset with you, and we begin to live with this fear of God because we don't understand who, listen, you are accepted in Christ and you are favored in Christ. That means you never have to work your way in there. God keeps you in Christ in a position of divine favor. Number six, you and I, we are redeemed. Redeemed. It means that we've been purchased from the slave block of sin through the precious blood of Jesus and been set free. Again, a lot of Christians, you ask a lot of Christians about themselves, they say, well, I'm just a sinner. Just a sinner doing the best I can. I'm living in between getting saved and getting to heaven. I'm struggling. I'm trying. Now, listen, you're not just a sinner. You have been purchased back from the slave block of sin in Christ, and you have been set free. That's who you are. That's who you are. Number number seven, we are forgiven. It means that all the guilt of your sin, past, present, 
and future has already been removed in Christ. And then number eight, we have been given God's perspective. We're given God's perspective, meaning that you and I have been given wisdom, the endless ability to grow in understanding who we are in him. That's where we've come so far. Eight things in Ephesians chapter 1. All of these realities are what Paul was referring to in verse 3 when he said that we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What does that mean? It means this is already us. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're accepted, we're loved, we're favored, we're redeemed, we're forgiven. All this is who we are in Christ. And don't miss this. This is not what you hope to be. This is who you are in Christ. Well, I I hope God will accept me. Well, I I hope God's going to forgive me. Well, I hope God's going to show me. No, this is not what we hope to be. This is who we are in Christ. And listen, here's, here's the good news. This isn't all. We got a couple of more we're going to look at this morning. But listen, Ephesians 1 is not an exhaustive list. This book is a treasure chest of truth about who you are in Christ. And the more we pursue him relationally, the more we grow. That's why next weekend we're going to start a series about praying for one another. Right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul starts talking about praying for brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason why we pray for one another, and Paul's going to talk about praying that we grow in the knowledge of God. Why? Because the more we grow to know him, we begin to understand who we are in him. And when we understand who we are in him, it changes the way that we live in this world. So let's jump back in this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, open it up. We're going to begin reading in verse number 11. Now, if you look up here on the screen, the first two words of the verse I've got up here are in him. If you're looking in your Bible, that's not the first two words of verse 11. That's the last two words of verse 10. You say, why is that? Why did they do that? Well, I hope you know this, but when the, when the writers of the New Testament wrote these letters, they didn't put the verse numbers in there. Okay? The translators put the verse numbers in there so that when we're reading it, we can kind of try to find the right place. I can say, well, we're reading in the middle of the letter now. No, I can tell you what chapter and what verse so we can find it together. This sentence in the Greek language was so complex, even the translators struggled to know where do we start one verse and start the next one. So so you'll read it, and it's a little bit, sometimes you just got to read it understanding that it's written as one paragraph. But let's pick it up, chapter 1, verse 10, right at the end. In him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. That's good news right there. Amen. Inheritance, that means we're getting something. That's good. We're going to talk about that. Having predestined, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view 
to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Out of those verses, I want to try to summarize all of this under two more of these realities about who we are in Christ. Here's the first one. We are heirs. That's good news. We are heirs. Twice in these verses, Paul uses this word inheritance. Look at it. Verse 11, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 14, he said that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The word inheritance, if you look it up and study it, here's what it means in the English language. The word inheritance means to come into possession of that which belongs to someone else as a right because of your relationship to them. Here's what that means spiritually for you and I. Being in Christ, we now have a relationship with God. Because of our relationship with God, we have come into possession of something that did not originally belong to us, but now not only does it belong to us, because of our relationship to him, we got a right to it. It is ours, our inheritance. Paul writes about this idea of inheritance in another place. We've looked at this verse a couple of times through this series, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Now stop right there before we read past this. Paul's dealing with identity. A lot of times this is where Christians live. We think we've been invited into this relationship of religious slavery. And because of that, we live in constant fear of God. A lot of Christians think, well, God's done so much for me. He saved me. Now it's up to me, man. I got to live for him. I got to obey him. I got to do his will. I got to accomplish his mission. I got to make sure he's happy with me. I got to make sure he's not upset. I got to make sure I don't get on his bad side. It's this whole idea of being, a, being, being, being given this spirit of slavery that leads us to this constant fear in our relationship with God. Here's what Paul says. That is not what you and I have been invited into. We've not been given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. What did he say? You've, been, you've received a spirit of what? Adoption as what? As sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's that, that term of intimacy, that term of endearment. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, say it out loud, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, when you talk about inheritance, there are a couple of very important questions, right? The first question is, Who am I an heir of? Because being an heir is good, but it's better if the person you're an heir of is somebody, right? So the question of who am I an heir of is an important question. My wife and I right now are in the process of of redoing all of our paperwork. You know, if you're going to be a good steward of what God's entrusted you, then you need to have everything in place for when you prepare to leave this world. So you need to get all that done. So we're in, my wife and I are walking through that again so that somewhere 80, 90 years from now, somebody can drag that out and we can deal with that, right? And, and this weekend, we were talking about this uh, because it's just on our plate right now. We're dealing with it. And we, we, we wrestled with this statement a little bit. We want to we wanna leave like we live and by that, here's what we mean. As we, as we prepare to leave our stuff, 
We want to leave the way that we've lived. And the way we've lived with the stuff is, is obviously God's used it to provide for our family. But, but beyond that, God's called us to a level of sacrificial generosity, investing in the kingdom of God. So, so in our final documents, we're preparing to leave like we've been living. We've set aside some for, for our kids to make sure that children and grandchildren are taken care of. But we've set aside a big chunk to be invested in kingdom. Why? Because we've been called to seek first the kingdom of God. So as a part of preparing these final documents, we've, we've set aside a portion that's going to obviously be given to our children and our grandchildren to take care of them. But here's the downside for, for my kids and my grandkids. Vance and Christy ain't got a whole lot. <laughs> so being an heir of us is not that big of a to-do, right? It's just not that big a deal. I mean, they'll, they'll get a few things, but, but they're not going to be able to just go live on a beach somewhere for the rest of their life because being an heir of us is not that big a deal. So if you're talking about inheritance, who you're an heir of is really an important question. Well, look what the verse says. We are heirs of who? How about that? Let me leave. listen to one half verse from the Bible. Psalm chapter 50, verse 12. In one half the verse, here's what it says. For the world is his and all it contains. That means you take all the universe in its totality, and that's a box. Everything on the inside of it, it all belongs to him. And guess what? I'm his heir. And so are you. But there's a second very important question. Not only who are you an heir of, but what position do you hold in the family or what portion of the inheritance is yours, right? I mean, it's one thing to be an heir of somebody, but if all they leave you is the toothbrush holder, it really doesn't matter, right? What, what position are you in the inheritance? What does it say? Heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with who? This is so good. Listen, this phrase, fellow heirs, it's a compound word in the Greek language. It takes the word that we've read here, inheritance, and it adds to it the word together. When you, when you put that word like it is in the Greek New Testament, it means inheritance together. It means joint inheritance. It means joint heir. The Bible says we are heirs of God, and we are a joint heir, a fellow heir. We are sharing together in the portion with Christ himself, meaning this, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me and belongs to you. We are joint heirs in the family of God with Christ himself. His riches are our riches. His resources are our resources. His power is our power. His privilege is our privilege. Everything that belongs to him belongs to me. Why? Because I've earned that? No, because I'm in Christ we're heirs. Listen to the way John MacArthur writes about it. John MacArthur says, In Jesus Christ, believers inherit every promise God has ever made. That ought to make somebody shout amen. Just that sentence. Did you hear what he just said? In Jesus Christ, every promise God has ever made has now been inherited by you and me. You'll get it later. Let's read on. I gave you every opportunity to get it right right there. And about four of them right over here did. The rest of you. 
Our every conceivable need is met by God's gracious provision in accordance with his divine promises. We are promised peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory, those and every other good thing that come from God. Because we have been made joint heirs with Christ, we are guaranteed possession of everything he possesses that's who we are in Christ we're heirs let me tell you a few things about this inheritance number one it's ours listen to what Paul said in verse 11 we have obtained an inheritance it's written in the Greek language in what's called the aorist tense why is that important Every time the aorist tense is used in the Bible, it speaks of action that is already completed. It is done. Here's what that means. We don't hope to get an inheritance one day. We have already obtained an inheritance. It is ours. Peter wrote with this same idea. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, there it is, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Read the last part out loud. Reserved in heaven for you. This word reserved means it's, it's been set aside. Somebody's guarding it. It's being watched over. It is already reserved for you and me. I went to college in a small town called Florence, Alabama. Went to the University of North Alabama there in Florence, Alabama. One of the great blessings of being in college in this small town in Florence, Alabama is it was the town where my dad's parents lived, my grandparents on my dad's side. I knew them as Big Daddy and Me Mommy. That's who they were my whole life, Big Daddy and Me Mommy. And Me Mommy was a typical southern cook, man. I mean, me mommy knew how to throw down some food. When me mommy would make something, somebody else might make the same thing, but hers was just better. I mean, she just had this way of And she was the kind of southern cook, like, like she had beside her stove was this can filled with bacon grease, Right? Like when my grandmama would cook bre breakfast and she would make bacon, when she was done, she would take the skillet and she would pour it into this can and it would form into this inhuman substance and it would just sit there on the counter. And then when she was going to cook something else, she would take a scoop of that grease and she would lather everything else up in the skillet with that grease. And man, I'm telling you, it'd just like, be like heaven on earth. Your tongue beats your brains out trying to get to it. It's so good. So... There were times when my grandmama would call me, me mommy would call and she'd say, Vance, I cook dinner and I have set aside a plate for you. Now, when me mommy set aside a plate for me, here's what that meant. Nobody else could touch it because <laughs> I was her favorite grandchild. <laughs> she reserved it. Here's what that meant. She's saying to me, Vance, Whenever you want it, it's yours. 
Whenever you're ready for it, you can come any moment, and it's right there waiting on you. Here's what Peter said. The inheritance that we have from God, it's already reserved in heaven. God has set it aside, and here's what he says to you this morning. Whenever you want it, you just come get it. Whenever you need to draw from the resources of my riches, he says you just come and draw. It's ours, but here's the second thing. It's ours by God's sovereign grace. Look what he said. We have obtained an inheritance. It's, it's not just in the aorist tense. It's in the passive voice. If something's in the active voice, it means that the subject is doing the action. But it's when the passive voice, it means the subject is receiving. Here's what that means. This inheritance that God has set aside for me, that's been reserved, that I can draw. Here's what he's saying. I didn't do one thing to get it. I simply received that by which God's sovereign grace set aside. That's why he goes on and says, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The word predestined means to determine beforehand. God established in eternity past this was going to be mine and reserved it over here for me. But here's the third thing. It's ours. It's ours by God's sovereign grace. It's ours by God's sovereign grace for his glory. Look at verse 12. To the end. Here's what that means. Here's the reason. Here's the ultimate end. Here's the aim. Here's the result. God says, man, I've set this aside for you. But here's the reason. What does he say? To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be, describing an ongoing continuous act, would be to the praise of his glory. Here's what that means. From now through eternity, our lives are to be a crescendo of praise to the glory of God. We have not received this inheritance so that we may glory in what we have. We have received this inheritance so that we may glory in the one to whom we have received it from and to constantly live our lives pointing others to him. We are heirs. But then there's a second thing. We are sealed. We're sealed. Look at verse 13. In him, you, after listening to the gospel, message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, chosen, loved, accepted, adopted, forgiven. I get all that. That's awesome. Sealed? What does it mean that we're sealed? It's actually not something that you hear taught on very often in the context of the church. It's not used, this term isn't used a lot in describing our position in Christ. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, uses it here. And I'm so thankful that he did because it's describing a finished work of God in our lives that we've received because of our Position in Christ through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God in us. When you believed in the gospel, the Bible says spiritually, we are now in Christ. But at the same time we were placed in Christ, guess what? 
Christ came to live in us. We are now in Christ, and Christ is in us by the person of the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us. And the Bible says when the Holy Spirit indwelt us, we were sealed. Okay, what does it mean to be sealed? Well, there are actually four ways this word is used in the New Testament, and all of them have application about what it means for you and I to be sealed by the Spirit. First of all, in the New Testament, a seal is a sign of a finished transaction. Let me show you an example of this. Romans chapter 15, Paul writes and he says, therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal, you see it right here? I've put my seal on this fruit of theirs. I will go on by way of Spain to you. Paul is describing something that he's doing and he says, when I'm finished, when the transaction is done, I will put my seal on it as a sign that it's finished. We use that term this way in our language as well. In, our, in the English language, we have this word seal. And what I'm holding in front of you today is a, an actual birth certificate. This is my youngest daughter, Faith's birth certificate. She's our only native Nevadan in our family. All the rest of us were parachuted in. She born right here in Nevada. And this is her birth certificate. When she was born, after she was born, they gave us this certificate. On this birth certificate, right down towards the bottom is a raised seal. Right above the seal, here's what it says. Not valid without the raised seal of the Clark County Health District. Meaning this, once this thing has been sealed and given, it is a sign that the transaction is finished. What transaction? She'd been born, right? They didn't give me this on the paperwork process, beginning our way into the hospital. They didn't give me this while Christy's in that room pushing. They gave us this once that baby had been born. There's a finished transaction. It has been sealed, and the seal is a sign that the transaction is done. How does that apply to us spiritually? Here's how it applies. To be sealed means that you and I are not hoping to be made right with God. We're not hoping that somehow we're going to be reconciled to God. We're not hoping that our sins are going to be taken care of. To be sealed means that the transaction is done. We have already been made right with God. How did that happen? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why when he was on the cross, Jesus said, it is what? Finished. What's finished? Everything that needed to be done to reconcile us back to God. And when we believed in the gospel, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the transaction is done. We've been made right with God. A seal is a sign of a finished transaction. But secondly, a seal is a sign of authenticity. It's a sign of authenticity. I have this picture that I want to show you today. This is out of my office at home. This is a picture of the greatest hitter to ever play Major League Baseball. Now, if you do not know by looking at this who this is, I feel very sorry for you. It's a shame that you've grown up not. I love sports. I love baseball. This is the greatest. This is Ted Williams. Ted Williams played for the Boston Red Sox. Ted Williams is the last Major League Baseball player to complete an entire season with a batting average over 400. The single greatest hitter to ever play the game. But this is not just a picture of Ted Williams. Ted Williams signed very few autographs, but this is an actual autograph picture of Ted Williams that someone gave me as a gift. You say, well, how do you know he really signed that? Because on the back, 
is a seal. And this seal says, Certificate of Authenticity. This is to certify that the enclosed item of sports memorabilia was personally signed by Ted Williams. It has been certified as being authentic. You say, how does that apply to Scripture? Well, let me show you how the Bible uses this, this word like this. Over in, look over in John chapter 6, verse 27. The Bible says, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his what? Say it out loud. Seal. When did God the Father set his seal on God the Son? He did it at his baptism. What happened at his baptism? When Jesus was baptized, what did the Father say? The Father spoke from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. What was the Father doing? He was putting his seal of authenticity. This is the Messiah. This is my son. Here's what the Bible says happened. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of you and he sealed you as an authentic, genuine child of God. That's why Paul wrote this and he said the Spirit in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's a sign of authenticity. Number three, The seal is a sign of ownership. It's a sign of ownership. We have a a new family in our church. Uh, The husband in that family is a man whose name is Joe Esposito. Joe is one of the new assistant coaches at UNLV on behalf of the UNLV Running Rebels. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some Rebel basketball this fall. Amen? I expected more from you. All right. I'm ready for some Rebel basketball. I called Joe this week, and I said, Joe, I need to borrow something. And he brought me an actual chair from UNLV where it says UNLV has got their seal, the running rebel basketball, not running rebel, but the running rebel basketball. And this is what they sit in courtside when they're waiting to go in the game. It's a UNLV chair. It is the property of UNLV basketball. It has been sealed. It belongs to them. Here's what that means. Come tomorrow morning, they expect it back. (laughs) I don't get to keep it. It doesn't go in my office. This has got to go. Why? Because this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to them. How do I know that? Because it's got their seal on it. Let me show you this in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, listen to what the Bible says. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The fact that the Spirit of God has come to live inside of us is as if across our soul is written, this belongs to God. I belong to him because I've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Listen to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, the Bible says, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and, get this, purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here's what that means. In eternity past, God in his sovereign grace set his heart on you, and he set his heart on me. Then in time, Christ came into this world, and he purchased our redemption through 
through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now the Spirit indwells us as a testimony that we belong to him. And one day when he comes again for all eternity, because we belong to him, we will reign with him. But there's one final word. This, this idea of the seal has one more thing that it means. And for all the moms in the room, when you see this, you know what this is, right? It's a baby food jar, right? And all of our little kids, we, we feed them out of these baby food jars. And there's an important aspect of a baby food jar, though, right? And, and this, one, this one's organic, so everybody chill out. It's organic baby food, so we're only feeding them the best, right? There's an important factor to the baby food jar, and it is that it is what? It's sealed, right? So that you as a mom can know that what you are putting into the mouth of your child, the contents of this jar have been kept secure. You see, the seal is a sign of protection. The seal is a sign of security. How do we know that this is sealed? Because when we open it, what's going to happen? You're going to hear the pop, right? All right, let's test it. I'm going to put it up close to the mic. There it is, right? Now, we can, we can close it again. It's not going to happen again, right? Because that seal's now been broken. But as long as that seal is intact, everything on the inside of that jar, we can know. We can have confidence that it is secure and it's protected because it is sealed. The New Testament uses the word this way. Let me show it to you. Matthew 27 talking about the tomb of Jesus. It says, and they went and made the grave, what? Secure. Along with the guard, they set a what? Seal on the stone. What was the purpose of the seal on the tomb of Jesus? It was trying to protect. It was a preservation. It was security about what was on the inside. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You're talking about a seal and how we're secure, but the seal that was on the tomb, Jesus broke that, and you just broke the one on that baby bottle. How secure are we? Listen, what you need to understand about the seal of the Holy Spirit of God is that it's speaking to the eternal security of our relationship with God, meaning that the moment the Holy Spirit of God came to indwell us, we were secure in our relationship with God forever. Let me show it to you in the Bible. John chapter 10, Jesus said in verse 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they will, say these two words out loud. Say them again. Say them one more time. Did you hear that? I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. How do we know? We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Look at it. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We've been placed in Christ at the moment of salvation. Christ has come to live inside of us. Now we are in the hand of Christ himself. Listen, your security does not rest in your ability to hold on to him. Your security rests in the fact that he is holding on to you. But listen, it gets even better. Look what he says. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. Here's what that means. We are in Christ. He's holding us. And because we're in Christ, we're now in the Father, and he's holding us. Then listen to what Jesus said next. I and the Father are what? Here's what Jesus did. He took the security of our relationship with God, 
and elevated it to the security of his eternal relationship with the Father. Meaning this, your security with the Father in Christ today is as secure as Christ himself. You can't get more sealed than that. Last question. When were we sealed? When did this happen? Well, look at verse 13. In him, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. You were sealed. Paul tells us, here's when you were sealed. First of all, you had to hear the gospel. Paul says, after listening, the word listen here is a word that means to hear with understanding, to hear and comprehend. Before we were sealed, we all had a moment when we heard the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus. The gospel says that you and I have sinned against God. The gospel says that you and I have broken God's law. The the Bible says that we've stepped across God's boundary. And the gospel says because we've done that, We are cut off from a relationship with God. And if we die cut off from a relationship with God, we spend eternity separated from a relationship with God. And if we really got what we deserve, that's what we'd all get. That's what the gospel says. You say, I thought the gospel was good news. That's not good news. Listen, that's the bad news, but you got to know the bad news to understand the good news. You see, God loved you so much and God loved me so much that even though we'd sinned against him and we deserve to spend eternity separated from him, God sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus took on humanity, lived a sinless life, offered his body on a cross. Why? For your sin and my sin. He took all of our sin on himself and on the cross. Jesus died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And that's the message of the gospel, that you can now... Because of what Jesus did, be made right with God. So, before you're sealed, you got to hear the gospel, but there's more than hearing the gospel. You got to believe the gospel. Paul says, after listening, having also believed, the word believed means to trust in, to, to surrender to, to believe on, to put your faith in. Paul says, when you understand the gospel that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God, but that God loves you anyway. And he died on a cross and rose again from the dead so that you can be made right with God. He said, when you understand that and you put your faith in Jesus, you believe in Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. At the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Meaning the transaction is done. You've been made right with God. Meaning you are now an authentic, genuine child of God. Meaning that you now belong to Him. And meaning that you are now secure in Him for all eternity. And not just that. Listen, everything else we put up on the board to start with, all becomes true about you in that instant. Chosen, adopted, loved accepted, forgiven, redeemed. All of that becomes who you now are in Christ. Let's pray together today.
Father, I pray that you take your word and speak as only you can. Lord, give us instruction today that would teach us about who we are in you. And as you sit quietly before the Lord, just really contemplating what you've heard from God today, I want to I talk to two groups in closing this morning. And, and talking to these two groups, I want to try to bring some application out of what I've shared with you. First of all, I want to talk to you here today if you're here and you're not yet a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. You've never put your faith in Christ. If that's you today, all that we've described from God's Word can be yours if you just put your faith in Him. And here's what I want to invite you to do in just a few moments. We're going to close today by singing a song of worship. It's not a time to slip out early. It's not a time to beat everybody to your car it's a time for us to respond to what we've heard from God and his word it's a serious moment really when we stand to sing this song of worship if you've never put your faith in Jesus but today you want to do that while we're singing this song I want to invite you to come we have pastors here at the front all along the front you can come to any one of us and here's all you need to say I need Jesus that's it If you forget that, don't worry about it. We'll know why you're here. Just say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a love relationship with God today. How you can be born again into relationship with God today. In just a moment, you're just going to come. Now, while you're thinking about that, I want to talk to all the Christians that are already Christians in the room. Paul is writing to us in this first chapter about who we are in Christ, but As you get further into this letter in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul begins to change direction a little bit. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Here's where we're going in the book of Ephesians. Paul says, Who you are in Christ should ultimately begin to change the way you live in the world. Because as I grow in who I am in Christ and Christ begins to live his life through me, guess what? I'm conformed to his image and my walk, my lifestyle begins to reflect more who I am in Christ. Not as a performance, but as Christ in me living through me. So Christian, as we've talked for four weekends now about who you are in Christ, let me ask you a question. Is who you are in Christ changing how you live in the world? Maybe for some of you this morning, you just want to come and be alone in an altar. We're going to open these steps up like an old-fashioned altar. You can just come and be alone with God for a few moments if you want to do that. Maybe you want to pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, whatever it is. We're here. This is a time for us to respond to the voice of God as he speaks. Lord, have your way in this moment. God, I pray for those right now that are not Christians, that know right now they need to be saved. Lord, give them the boldness to just step out of their row and to come to one of our pastors and say, I need Jesus. God, give them the courage this morning to do that. They'll leave here forever changed because of Jesus. God, I pray for Christians today that you're speaking to about where they're living and, God, understanding who they are in you. I pray for Christians today, God, that there would be brokenness and surrender and filling by your Spirit. 
Lord, have your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.